0: the Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together, and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. May not look like it today, but our passage, the end of Mark's gospel, it's many things, but among that, the many things this ending of the gospel tells us, this is a passage about promises. It's a passage about promises. The Bible, I'm sure you know, it traffics very heavily in promises, right? Uh, one of the key contentions of the Bible is that God makes promises. God keeps promises. God doesn't like broken promises. Two of the Ten Commandments deal with promises, doesn't, don't they, right? The first, about taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, part of that means when you take an oath and you swear, and you swear falsely in God's name, you know, it's bad news. Don't do that. Not only this, but you also have the commandment not to give false witness, um, which is a way of saying you make a swear to tell the an oath to tell the truth, the only truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God, and then you, God says, don't go on to give something that you know is false and untrue. On the other side of that, we call it today lying under oath. And so promises are a big deal to God; they're a big deal to us as well. Uh, so much of our society, our culture, our lives are. Our, interlocked with promises that have legal consequences. Your mortgage is a legally binding promise, all right? Your rental agreement is a legally binding promise. You pay the bank or your landlord a certain amount, and you get to live in the house. And of course, if it's a mortgage, at the end of 30 years, the bank promises you to give you the home. And if you're a landlord or a rentee, what happens? There's a promise that when things go wrong with the house, it will be fixed in a timely manner. Marriages are promises too, aren't they? We just don't call them promises. We call them vows, right? You vow to love and to cherish until death. Do you part in sickness and in health? That is a promise. We just give it a fancier name. So much of our life is built in around this concept of promise um, that we are made in the image of God and as such, God makes promises, and so do we. You might not see it, but at the end of the Bible, uh, at the end of Mark's gospel here, we see a number of promises coming to fruition. There's maybe two categories we can look at, two categories of promises coming to fruition. And the first is that the promises delivered uh, to the the prophets of old are are coming together. Uh, Throughout his time working with Israel and her people, God gives Israel a number of promises and says one day... This will happen, and this will be fixed, and this will be better. An example would be all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are in the garden. And after the great fall, after the temptation of the serpent strikes and pulls Adam and Eve away from God's goodness, God says, one day, Eve, your descendant will come. He will strike and kill and crush the serpent, but the serpent will still bruise his heel. So it's this promise that the, the great serpent of Eden will be de- destroyed, but not at, it will come at a cost to the one who destroys it. Think also about our reading from Psalm 22 today. One who totally trusts God is going to come. And that person will trust God in the midst of extreme hardship and scorn and pain and rejection. And when that person comes, they will be for the people of Everything needed for life and salvation. That's the Messiah of Psalm 22. Even the centurion's words in our reading today at the end of the Gospel are worth our consideration. What does he say after seeing Jesus die? Truly, this man was the Son of God. A massive theme across the entirety of the Old Testament is that one day the whole world would come to recognize that God is God, he is the one God, and that he is the one to go to with everything uh, that is important in life. And even here, we have this Gentile centurion who looks to Jesus and confesses, indeed, that he is the Son of God. It's a fulfillment of a great theme in the Old Testament. Our famous passage today from, uh, from Isaiah 53 gets to the heart of this, in fact. Um, it's one of the most explicit passages in the Bible that outlines God's promise to send a suffering Messiah. Takes upon himself the consequences and punishment and pain and sins of the world. In fact, it's so spot on that uh, before 1950 ish, but in the 1940s and before that, scholars who were hostile to Christianity, who didn't like the church, and who thought the Bible was, you know, sort of a, they didn't believe that the Bible was anything more than just fairy tales from the past. They said, you know what probably happened? This passage from Isaiah 53 is so spot on. There's no way this thing could predate uh, Christians. It describes Jesus so perfectly, Isaiah 53, they said, that that this had to be some sort of later edition. Like the Christians went and picked up Psalm 53 and changed the words, and and then everyone just bought into the changed words. He said, there's no way that the people living before Jesus' time would have the foresight and the prophecy or whatever to actually come up with something this close to what Jesus actually did. And so scholars believe that. They taught that. They said there's no way this could be accurate to Isaiah's original teaching until the year 1948. And here's what happened in 1948. A shepherd, some shepherds uh, working near the Dead Sea were just kind of kicking rocks around and hanging out, watching the flocks. And he took a rock, one of the shepherds, he threw it in a cave. And the rock flew into the cave and he heard a big pot shatter. It went crack and crash. He said, oh, what was that? He goes into the cave and looks, and he finds there's lots of these pots just sitting there all around the Dead Sea. And he opens the lid, and he sees there's a bunch of paper in it. So he goes and gets some some friends from from, uh, uh, the community who are scholars, and they check it out, and they say, this is incredible. It turns out that the shepherd inadvertently found the the biggest stash of ancient manuscripts uh, of Jewish literature and world literature that has ever yet to be found. You may have heard them called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And sure enough, one of them concluded the the, the scroll of Isaiah, and they went and they carbon dated it, and guess what? It precedes Jesus' birth by like 250 years. And so there was a point where people looked at this passage and they said in Isaiah 53, all of this about a suffering servant, they said, this can't be true. This has to be made up. There's no way this could be the case. And yet, that's what the evidence tells us, that Isaiah 53 is indeed um, a, a Figure a prefiguring of what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus' ministry, his life, his death and resurrection become the fulfillment of a great promise. So that's the first set of promises, right? God, God fills in the gaps of the Old Testament. He says, here are all the promises I've made, and, and look, see Jesus dying and rising again. See his clothes being gambled. See how he is pierced. See how um, uh, he is crushed. All of these things promised by the Old Testament come true in Jesus. That's the first step, but there's a second set of promises that are a little more personal that Jesus answers as well. The second set of promises are promises that he made personally to his disciples. Halfway through Mark's Gospel, if you remember back all the way to chapter 8, Jesus begins to tell them, I am the Messiah. This means I will suffer and die and rise again. It's not a one-off conversation. Repeatedly, Jesus says privately to his 12 disciples, he says, what it means to be the Messiah is to suffer and die and rise again. And the disciples don't get it. They don't understand exactly what he means. And, and most poignant is at the Last Supper, after the Last Supper, excuse me, as in Mark's Gospel in, in chapter 14, as they're walking to uh, out of the Last Supper and they're heading to the garden, Jesus says, listen, when you all scatter and you flee, I want you to know that after I rise from the dead, I want you to meet me in Galilee. The disciples say, no, what are you talking about? We're not going to scatter and flee. We talked about this some last week in church. And Jesus says, "Ah, no, you will. It's been prophesied. But I want you to know that after I rise again, I want you to come meet me in Galilee. What do the angels say in our reading today? Here's from our passage. Do not be alarmed, says the angel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. That last line is a kicker, isn't it? Just as he told you. That Jesus is a man of his word, a keeper of promises. He is true until the very end and even afterwards. It follows right in line with God's character. God makes promises, he keeps promises even the great depths of darkness and despair that is Good Friday, those things are not enough to keep God from keeping his promises, whether they are the promises made to his friends as disciples or the promises ancient in the Old Testament. You know, not all ancient gods cared about promises like this. This isn't something that is really, it's unique to the the, the Judeo-Christian understanding of who God is, right? In Greek mythology, that pantheon of gods it's, they're backbiting, they undermine each other. They're like reality television contestants, <laughs> you know, except they've been elevated to the status of God. And, um, you know, for example, Zeus, I mean, talk about breaking promises. His infidelity to his wife Hera is very well known if you follow Greek mythology. He is not a man of one woman. In fact, um, the story of the birth of Heracles, or Hercules if you're talking in Roman terms, but the story is that Zeus actually transforms himself into the, the form of Hercules' mother's husband. He, he, he tricks Hercules' mother, um, Alcmene. He, he tricks her um, by becoming the form of her husband. So she thinks that she's with her husband, but she's not. She's with Zeus, and Heracles is born as a result. So, you know, so much for, for marital vows or keeping promises or any sort of relationship to goodness. And in North, Norse mythology, if you don't know this, um, Odin famously breaks a promise. Uh, Odin gets to be a trickster; he does not keep his promise. Um, there's a, a famous uh, mead, a famous mead in Norse mythology called the Mead of Poetry, and anybody who drinks of it is is filled with inspiration and power and and, and um, uh, sort of like a uh, the 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 giftedness to write good and beautiful poetry. This is something in Norse mythology. And so Odin, he wants to drink of this cup because he wants to be a good poet and tell these great stories and, and be um, respected in that way. And so he got, finds the family that has the mead and they say, he says, I want to work for you and uh, I, want, I want to drink the mead as a result. And they say, okay, Odin, that's fine. We're going to do that. So, so come and, and drink with me. Uh, work for me for a while and then we'll we'll, we'll trade you. We'll give you some of the mead, if you drink, uh, work for us. And so Odin, he works for a number of years. He serves the family. He does all this. And then he goes, they say, OK, well, here you go. Here's three drops. That's what you get, three drops. And Odin says, yeah, three drops. That's great. So they hand him the cup. And he takes the cup. And then he throws it back, downs it all, turns it into an eagle, and flies out the window. <laughs> right? so, so Odin actively tricks the people who he is working with. He is not like the God of Israel in that capacity. Other gods have a lot to say about keeping your oaths, right? The Mesopotamian gods had a lot to say about that. So do the, so does Allah in Islam, so does the, the, the pantheon of Hindu gods, like you don't. When you make a, a, a vow, even if it's a bad vow, you take it. But on top of that, you've got gods who will make oaths to the people, but they're conditional. The Assyrian god Marduk famously makes an oath to keep the seasons in regular order so that crops... And harvests can continue in the land. And he says, I will continue to keep this going so long as you little ants of human beings serve me and worship me. And so he holds it over their head like the sword of Damocles. He's like, are you guys worshiping me? You guys, uh, you guys serving me? Huh, huh, huh? You want your seasons to go funky? Well, well, you know, you better not. And so you look at the other, the, the, the world's understanding of God in different cultures and different regions. And there isn't a God like this one who makes promises and keeps them. A God who essentially invites you into his office, sits down at the desk, shows you a giant contract that says, here's all the good things I'm going to do for you. He signs it, gives you a copy, and you say, do I need to sign it too? And he says, no, that's okay, this is enough. And he hands you the copy of all the great promises. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like that. Um, the God of the Bible is unique when they talk about promises I wonder if you've ever experienced a promise like this. I wonder if you've seen a a promise uh, in action in the same way. Uh, As one does when parenting little kids, I I become familiar. My pop culture references tend to narrow to little children things. I don't do this all the time, but I was watching the the TV show Bluey the other day. Maybe you're familiar. And uh, there's an episode where the the kids in the show are learning about promises. Bluey is an Australian TV show. It's a show with dogs and they Family's a dog, right, and, the, and the, 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 there's mom and dad, and then there's Bluey, and then Bluey's little sister. And the family of four, they live in Brisbane, Australia, and it's just sort of love and learning and play, and, and it's, it's actually quite a wonderful show. But in this episode called Promises, the kids and the family are struggling to learn about what a promise is and why they should be kept. And it starts off at the trampoline park, and the kids are bouncing at the trampoline park, and the dad says to them, Okay, kids, I promise to take you to the library. If we're going to go before it closes, we need to leave now. And the kids in the show do what every kid does, right? What do they say? Just five more minutes, Dad. Just five more minutes. Well, five minutes becomes 15 minutes, becomes 20 minutes. And they get in the car and they go to the library, but they find the library is closed. It is closed. They didn't get out of the trampoline park in time. But the kids are angry at their dad. They said, Hey, you promised to take us to the library. And the dad says, well, you didn't leave the trampoline park on time, and the kids are, you promised, and and they're learning about promises, but they're mad at their dad because he promised to take them to the trampoline, uh, the library, but he didn't. And the rest of the show, the kids are learning about promises, and the cheeky parents kind of team up to teach their kids about the importance of keeping their promise in good faith. So Bluey promises to go clean up her panda puzzle she left in the living room, but she forgets to. And she goes and cleans it up, and it exposes a little bit of her own hypocrisy that she promised to clean up the panda puzzle, but her dad promised to go to the library, but she's not so good at keeping her promises either. And then the next day, they're going to the library, and the dad says, come on, kids, hurry, we're going to the library, to the car, hurry up. I'll play whatever game you want at the library. I promise. And the kids hear that, they go, you promise? And they make him play a game called Toddler in which the father walks around the library on his knees and pretends to be a toddler, and he has to do it because he promised. And the kids say, you promised we'd play toddler? And the dad says, fine, I'll play toddler. And he embarrasses himself, and the kids love it. But then dad gets back at the kids. He says uh, to, to, his, his, to Bluey, he says, hey, I've got two books. Can I just put them in your bag? And, and Bluey says, sure, I'll put them in the bag. And he reaches down, he pulls two giant thump reference books that are like that thick and says, ha-ha, you promised. And so she goes and she's pulling this little canvas bag with the heavy books and she's all frustrated. And and, and so as the episode goes forward, these kids, they're learning about promises that can be broken, promises that can be used to trick each other, um, promises and, and, and the, the seriousness by which to take them. But things change in the episode. The, the, the episode turns on this one moment where Bluey's little sister is stuck at the top of the monkey bars. She's stuck at the top of the monkey bars and she can't get down and she starts to cry for help and the mother comes over and the mother reaches her arms up and says, jump, I'll catch you. And and Bluey's watching this whole scene take place. She says, jump, I'll catch you. And and the little sister says, do you promise? And the mother says, yes, I promise. And so on top of the monkey bars, the little sister sort of gets up her courage and she, she, she recognizes her mother's trusting and so she believes the promise and what does she do? She lets go and jumps and falls into the mother's arms, and the mother catches her and swings her around playfully and lands her down on the ground safely. And it's this moment where where the, the power of promises and what they can mean for you and me and for Bluey and for anyone else, it becomes made clear because promises are ultimately about relationship and trust and overcoming fear. And breaking a promise, well, that's about destroying relationships it's, 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 um, it's something that tears relationships apart. It fosters doubt, multiplies our fears. Broken oaths destroy relationships. And the risk at jumping off the playground for, Bluey, for Bluey's sister is pretty high, right? I mean, she's up high. If she jumps and she's not caught, what's going to happen? She's going to be hurt. At minimum, she'll get bumps and bruises and bonk her head. But at maximum, I mean, she's right to be a little wary. She could end up in the hospital with a broken bone or a concussion. Not only that, of course, but if the little girl jumped and her mother didn't catch her, well, it would be a take-a-while to put that trust back in the trust bank that the mother, she actually cares and is safe. And still, despite all this risk, the little sister leaps anyway from the monkey bars. She lets go of it all. She says, I'm going to give up my control, my agency, my power. And of course, it was her control and agency and power that got her up and stuck on the monkey bars in the first place, right? Maybe she should have known better. But she gives it all up and says, I am going to fall into my mother's arms because she promised she would catch me. And as the episode begins to draw to a close, Bluey looks at all of this, probably not understanding all of that, <laughs> but she looks at this moment and she recognizes, okay, promises are a good thing. And as the episode draws to a close, her parents, she had promised her parents that when they called to come and leave the playground and go home, she would come immediately. And She does. When the parents come, she does not hesitate. She goes to leave with them. This is among the many reasons why the Christian faith is not in vain, to use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. God keeps his promises. That becomes the, the core of our foundation to trust and keep all the other promises that he's made to us that just haven't been fulfilled yet like the mother dog stretching her arms upward to this child stuck on the top of the monkey bars promising to catch her when she jumps, God's invitation to us is let go. Trust me, follow me. Your own power and your own agency are not enough to save you and get you through everyday life. It's scary to give it all up, but if you can let go, I promise, I promise to catch you, to rescue you. To swing you joyfully in my arms and bring you to safety. And we know this is true because of what we read in Mark's gospel today. God fulfills this great promise to Israel of sending a suffering Messiah, a perfect and godly King who will take away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God without blemish, who bears the iniquity of the world on himself. Jesus fulfills this promise to his disciples. He says, when I rise again, I will meet with you in Galilee. And that is indeed what happens. If God has been faithful in all of these other promises, if you look at God's track record of promise-keeping in the Bible, then the promises that apply to us about the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world to come, why would we not think that they would come true to? Why would we think that they wouldn't come true? And so, like the child rejoicing, love, and the promises of God, we too have the opportunity to let go, to jump into God's arms, to find in our own life that our own power and control and agency gets us more in trouble than it's worth, and to let God rescue us, catch us, swing us around, uh, and bring us to safety. I'd like to close with a very brief observation about the abrupt ending of Mark's gospel, because it is abrupt, comparatively speaking, isn't it? What happens at the end? The women, they flee trembling, astonished, and afraid, and the metaphorical credits began to roll. And that seems abrupt, but when you think about it, what more is there to say? Once Jesus rises from the dead, there's not much to consider elsewise. Mark has presented to us all of the ways in which God keeps his promises, all of the ways Jesus came to love and to care and to serve. He's outlined how Jesus has been given full authority by God, that he is indeed the Messiah foretold of the past, willing to go through the most excruciating circumstances and yet still keep faith and trust and obey God. So again, what more is there to inquire about? If he truly rose from the dead, what more do we need to know? The ever-efficient mark does not add stories of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, nor does he tie up every loose thread in the gospel. Instead, Mark wants us to see that we're like Bluey's little sister. We're stuck in a precarious situation of our own volition, and we need rescue. And, well, uh, he offers it to us. We are in need of a rescue, and he leaves us with this question, are you really willing to let go and jump? Are you willing to trust Jesus with your life, with your death, with your family, with your friends, with your job, with your bank account, with everything? Are you willing to let go and jump? Because God keeps his promises. He always does, always has, and always will. And if you are willing to jump, he will certainly catch you. Occasionally we do this at Epiphany, and and now that we're finishing our time in Mark's Gospel, I think it's good we do it again. Um, If there's something in your life today that you'd like to make a jump over, if there's something in your life that you'd like to make a jump about, um, well, I want to offer you an opportunity to respond that way this morning in a tangible way. Here's what I'd like to, to, to put in front of you. Perhaps you'd like to take the, the jump and trust God afresh, uh, and you'd like to take him in his word, about his promises, about forgiveness and comfort and the, for the world to come. If that's new to you, and you're ready to sort of take a leap and trust God. Um, well, I've got something for you. Um, and if you're somebody who's maybe you you've followed God for a long time, but there's something new in your life and you're having trouble it's like okay well I've trusted all these other things but there's this thing here that I'm really struggling with and you've got sort of a something stuck in your craw and you're like oh I can't trust God with this well this is for you as well um, when you come forward today for communion um, and, you, and you kneel I just discreetly put your hand up like this all right just kind of let me know that you're going to get my attention and if you'd like a special if you do that I'll say a, a special prayer a blessing over you And then I'll get in touch later and we can talk a little bit more about what's going on and I'll commit to pray for you. The idea being that uh, Mark's gospel asks us at the very end, what do we really think about Jesus' death and resurrection? And if we really think it's true and if we really think it's valuable and it's something that we want to to profess our faith in, well, it's good to say something and it's good to talk to someone about it. And perhaps in doing so, you'll find the promises strike a little truer. You have a little more trust and faith that God keeps his promises. I told you about this episode of Bluey, but I didn't tell you what happens at the very end. After a full day at the library about lessons and promises, the family goes home, they eat dinner, the kids take baths, they brush their teeth, and they go to bed. And after the kids are asleep, the father pokes his head into the bedroom to check on them, recalling the lessons of the day about the importance of not breaking promises and how trust and love and peace are things that promises can bring. The father smiles quietly over his sleeping children and says, I promise I'll always love you. And that is the end of the episode. And just like the loving father of the show, the end of Mark's gospel communicates to us the exact same thing. I say to you this morning, friends, that the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus, are God's way of saying to us, I promise I'll always love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.